This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Conversations on life, style, beauty, and relationships. It's the Velvet's Edge podcast with Kelly Henderson. Okay, I am back with Jody White. She is our licensed therapist and love addiction specialist. You're also a podcast host, and I'm a huge fan of the podcast. It's Journals of a Love Addict. Um, so we did a podcast a couple months ago, was that? I can't even remember I, at this point. It might have been last summer. The last oh, year yeah. is a blur. <laughs> Yes, like the pandemic all feels like one big (laughs) month to me. I don't know. Uh It's very weird. But um, I told you, and you and I have been talking a little bit before this, but I've been in recovery for codependency since 2013. In the last few years, I've started to slowly dip my toe into some love addiction work. And um, it has been so interesting. I was just telling you this. I have never found myself so hesitant to do the work around this kind of is it trauma or attachment wounds? I think that's how you describe it. Is that a typical thing that happens to people with this love addiction stuff? Yes, it is. Why? Well, okay. So we're talking about attachment. And so, yes, you just asked, is it, we call it trauma or attachment wounds. I I call it a lot of different things because it, it, well, let me start with this. I don't like the term love addiction. I don't like the Mm -hmm. term love addict. I don't even like the term codependence, you know, because, but the thing is, those are terms that are out there and I am trained in Pia Melody's model. Um, And so Pia Melody wrote Facing Codependence and she wrote the book Facing Love Addiction. And those terms helped me when I got into recovery. And so I call them starter terms. Okay. You know, that people can Google that. They can find books. They can things that have been written about that. And then they can start, you know, their own recovery, you know, doing research, getting lots of information with those starter terms. And you can call it whatever you want. That's what I like to tell people, call it what you want to call it really, but know that it is trauma. This is all trauma. attachment trauma. Yeah. And what, so what I call is it that? attachment wounding. Yeah. So what does what? that mean? I think we talked about this, this in the last podcast, but I do want to give people a little bit of an overview who are just joining us in this one. What would attachment trauma even mean? Yeah. And so that's another term too, that, you know, attachment trauma is also a pretty broad term because attachment trauma can happen in adult relationships with your attachment figure, right? As adults, we have attachment figures, people that we attach with in our relationships, 
But we're talking really about childhood um, developmental trauma. And that is actually what PMLity calls codependence is um, it is a developmental immaturity. And so what that means is, you know, children go through stages of development. And if there is wounding in any of those areas, there is going to be some issue with developing in those areas. So we might not mature in certain areas, which then leads us to be more immature in our relationships as adults. So we can call them like an interruption in attachment and they can look anything, what Pio says, you, you know, abuse falls into two categories, which is enmeshment or neglect. And so the thing about neglect is that it can be kind of invisible in a way. When we think of neglect, actually we might think of someone who doesn't have food, who doesn't have shelter, who doesn't have clothing and basic needs met, right? And that is, that's extreme neglect. But when we think about emotional neglect, you know, that's something that can be really subtle, you know, and, and it can happen so frequently. Um, and even in loving households, because parents are busy, you know, even if you have a two parent household, working, meetings, running kids to soccer practice, um, dealing with other children, you know, there's a lot of reasons that children might not get the emotional nurturance that they need and that can show up later in life as what was emotional neglect. So um, that is what we look at as trauma. So if we look at trauma in two ways, either enmeshment or neglect, and a lot of times in love addiction, we're talking about emotional neglect. Um, with love avoidance, we're talking oftentimes more about what was enmeshment. Mm -hmm. And so that is when, um, I don't like this term either, but let's just use it. Um, it's like, <laughs> Uh, helicopter parents, you know, where oh, it's like yeah. you're on the child, you're in the child hula hoop all the time, you know, and there's no freedom for the child to really become their own person. Um, so and someone who might become more avoidant later in life might feel love is suffocating. So they kind of push away from mm -hmm. intimacy and what they look at as love and attachment. So do you see, does that make sense? It totally makes sense to me. I mean, I think that's so interesting. I was thinking about when you were talking about the neglect piece, like mm -hmm. it's so interesting because parents could also be working through their own trauma. And so it's like, or dealing with their, you know, life is hard. Mm -hmm. And as an adult, I'm the more, the older I get, the more I'm like, I mean, there is constantly some issue. Right. And so yeah. that's hard as a parent, I would imagine to consistently emotionally show up when you're mm -hmm. also dealing as a human being with your own trauma, your own shit from your childhood, you know, like right. any of that stuff. That's right. Um, Gabor Mate talks, he does a really great job um, of talking about the importance of attunement in childhood, which is basically, you know, when we'll use the example of a crying baby or a crying toddler. And when the parent is regulated, you know, they can pick up the baby and they can hold the baby and help the baby regulate. If a parent is dysregulated, it's almost impossible to get the child to regulate. And so the child doesn't soothe, you know, with the parent, does that make sense? Totally. And so if a parent is stressed, the parent is dealing with three other children or the parent is trying to rush to get to work or their second job, you know, maybe they're a single parent. And um, so though that attunement, how rare you think that must be or how hard that is to do consistently. So um, that's why I look at, you know, I'll have clients sometimes come in and say, 
I'm 45 years old. I've always felt securely attached. And then I got into this relationship and now I'm behaving like a love addict and I don't know what's going on. And it's because another thing to look at is we can go through life and not, this stuff can lie dormant is how I look at it. And it can get triggered by a particular partnership, a particular dynamic, you know, with someone who comes along and is more avoidant and triggers that um, insecure attachment. So you might not even know you have it. That's see, that's so interesting to me. And you say this a lot in your podcast, but there have been times in my life where I don't feel any of this stuff, or there's been Mm -hmm. relationships where I don't feel any of this stuff, but it flares up. And a lot of times too, when I'm on my own, I'm great. So like, that's not, I mean, I can be lonely and want a relationship, but this stuff is not activated. So my anxiety, my panic, my codependence, like any sort of those symptoms, my codependency, it's just not activated or I don't notice it in the same way. It's in my life feels more manageable. And then I can get in a relationship and what, if that dynamic triggers this stuff, my life becomes completely unmanageable. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. If I drew you a picture of 30 years of my love addiction, it would be in the relationship, either love addict or love avoidant. Mm -hmm. And between relationships, what we, you know, some, but somebody might call high functioning, um, where I just was cruising. I was doing great. I was kicking ass at work. I was doing all kinds of great things, get into a relationship, especially if I got into a relationship with someone who was avoidant, I would, everything would fall apart because everything became about trying to get that love avoidant partner to pay attention to me. That's all I cared about, you know, or love me or validate me or whatever it is I needed from that particular person. So yeah, that's all. That's very common. Oh God. So are love addicts and love avoidance always drawn to each other? So if, if we look at it as something that's lying dormant, right. And this is not saying everyone's got, you know, everyone has a little bit of love addict or a little bit of love avoidant in them, but um, I don't know. That's not, no, that's not the case because there are co-addicted relationships. There's three types of co-addicted relationships. You've got the love addict, the love avoidant, but then you've got two avoidance be together. And that's a very low intensity relationship, but outside of the relationship, there's intensity going on. There may be an affair or maybe there's some gambling or maybe there's an addiction or um, maybe someone's, you know, spending too much money and shopping, but in the relationship, it seems very low intensity. Right? Or even someone intensity. works a lot like that. It works hard to interrupt, but yeah, like totally. I sometimes want to point that out because I've, I've mm-hmm. known that dynamic too. And work can often be a oh, yeah. way to keep intensity outside of the relationship because you're, yes. you know, quote unquote, so busy with work mm-hmm. or whatever. And that I actually thank you for bringing that up because I think that might be, if I were to make a, you know, a guess on this is that that might be the most common because it's also the most acceptable Of course, you know, the more you work, the better you are of a provider or the more you work, the more our society values you, the more money you make, whatever. So, um, and it's a really good way to, it can be, especially people in recovery, I've noticed that work can become the new addiction because, mm-hmm. you know, what making up for lost time or getting lots of validation there, you know, by throwing themselves into work. And I actually have been guilty about that too. Same. <laughs> because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had to catch myself because you will burn yourself out. Um, but then you also have two love addicts can be together too. Oh, I can't imagine that dynamic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Someone, um, <gasps> told me it was in Pia Melody's workshop out at the Meadows. They talked about um, picture to, uh, the couple that's been married for 50 years 
and they do every single thing together and they dress alike. <laughs> they both wear Hawaiian shirts, you know, they both wear these fun little, you know, like, and they just cannot be apart. You know, everything yeah. is them. They can't make plans without each other. They can't eat different meals. They have to eat. It's like just everything is together. So see, but isn't that interesting? Because when you're describing that, I know people are listening and they're like, oh, but that sounds like a cute little couple, you know, like, so how do you know when there's a problem with the dynamic and when it's just like, because I probably have never had a healthy relationship. I don't really know the answer mm-hmm. to this. But right. What, well, what's healthy? I mean, right. Exactly. But, yeah. but like, what, how would you dictate if you just love to be with your partner or you guys are both love addicts? Like what mm-hmm. would be the deciding factor in that question? So I think everything is in it's individual, right? Like I, let's use the couple that does every single thing together. They dress alike and all that stuff. If it works for them and it's not causing them a problem, then I guess that's not a problem. Right. But now you look at, are they able to have relationships with other people? Because I think actually in the example I was using that I heard at um, the Meadows workshop, they were talking about how the kids are affected in that. That oftentimes Mm -hmm. when the couple, the parents are so love addicted together that their children are, um, neglected. And so that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I asked you to do maybe a little brief overview because I think people have heard the term codependency more frequently than love addiction. I feel like love addiction is finally now just coming onto the scene or it is in my, my world, but, um, can you do a little brief description of the difference between the two? Because I am a lucky girl that has both, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's not always the case. Sure. So I'm going to reference Gabor Matei here because he does such a great job. And so he always, his, the way he puts it is it's not why the addiction, it's why the pain. And so if we're looking at childhood and attachment trauma, right. And so let's use the example of being uh, emotionally neglected, not getting our emotional needs met, how that leads to, um, it doesn't feel good as a child. You're it's painful. And so we turn to something to help soothe ourselves. And oftentimes for people who grew up to deal with love addiction, there's fantasy, right? And it's first probably the fantasy of a parent who is going to be nurturing and loving. You know, if only I do this, then maybe they'll be like this. They'll love me more. They'll do what I want them to do or they'll behave the way I want them to behave. But then that can develop into fantasy about another person who will come rescue them. That's very common in childhood. And I definitely did that when I was seven or eight, I started fantasizing about, you know, people on TV. Um, I always use my example of um, Eric Estrada from Chips and um, (laughs) Starsky from Starsky and Hutch. I mean, I really had serious crushes on them. And I used to fantasize about being a grown up and living in Hollywood and being married to one of them. And what I learned later in through my recovery was that, whoa, it actually, that fantasy wasn't about them. It was about how I felt about myself. I Ooh, felt, say that again. That's interesting. Yeah. So the fantasy for the longest time, I thought it was about those people that I would fantasize yeah. about. Right. But it was really about how good I felt about myself in the fantasy. I was a grown up. I was independent. I had awesome clothes. You know, I had freedom. I felt good about myself. Um, but see, the, the trick is that, let's just say, punch from um, chips had to be part of that, right. uh, that fantasy in order for me to feel that way about myself. 
Wow. That was just and a so, major aha moment for me. Yeah, it was for me too. I, <laughs> and so then that fantasy, you get into middle school, you start liking, you know, for me, I started liking boys and um, having crushes on boys and usually someone older who I had on a pedestal. Um, and then you do start dating and I started dating really emotionally unavailable guys, even in high school. Um, and so here, so it's all developing, see how this is all developing, but yes. so you're looking to something to soothe and this, what that turns into is it's the codependence is developing throughout childhood, right? Um, there's an, the five core symptoms of codependence. And this is according to Pia Melody's work. And this is, I love her model because it just, for me, to me, it, it worked in my recovery, but it's also, you can apply this model to pretty much any area of life, but it's um, codependence is the five core symptoms, issues with self-esteem. That means either too much or too little um, issues with boundaries, either no boundaries or walled off, right? Um, issues with moderation and then issues with um, dependency. And see, this is what a lot of people think of codependence as issues with dependency, but really that's just one of the five core symptoms. Um, and then issues with owning one's reality. Mm-hmm. And so then you take that. So codependence is already brewing. It's already there throughout childhood, right? It goes into, you start getting into adult relationships. The codependence can show up in your adult relationships. With love addiction, um, I, I say love addiction is rooted in codependence. So the codependence is already there. It's like the, the garden. <laughs> and then the love addiction is the weeds that grows in, yeah. the, in the garden, right? Yeah. Um, and you may not even notice the love addiction because you just think it's normal. Your behavior is normal. You know, you think it's normal to be um, in a relationship with someone who doesn't show up the way that you ideally would like them to. And it's normal to try to conform in order to be what they may or may not want you to be in order to get that love. So then you go back to what I was talking about in childhood. If I do this, then maybe I'll get mom or dad to love me like this if I do it this way. So it starts really early. So it is our quote unquote normal, you know, by the time we're adults. Um, And so love addiction is rooted in codependence. Not everybody who struggles with codependence is going to end up experiencing love addiction. Um, But everybody who struggles with love addiction struggles with codependence. Isn't that true for all, um, like, let's use alcoholism, because I think that's like one that people are maybe more familiar with. But um, people that I know who are in AA also a lot of times do codependence work because really what like alcohol is the symptom of all mm-hmm. of that other stuff. Right. And so yeah. in most addictions, like if we're saying love addiction or alcoholism, there's codependency behind it. And that's what's yeah. bringing the behaviors to the table. And then once you get sober or you stop drinking, you can address the codependency issues behind it. Exactly. Would that yeah. be a good way to describe it? Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, so if we look at, you know, yes, alcoholism and what's so fascinating about that is that we look at it and think, oh, if I quit drinking, then everything's going to be better. Right. No, and it's, it's actually the beginning. I mean, <laughs> and, and you know what? It does things do get better. But then what that does is just clears 
the crud so you can look at the crud underneath it. You, you know? don't have the medicator anymore. <laughs> right. You're not yeah. exactly right. So, um, and that's when a lot of times the love addiction will actually flare up. I work with a lot of clients who get sober first and then realize, oh, wow, look at my relationships. They're a really big mess. Right. So, yeah. So interesting. Well, I messaged you a couple weeks ago because I follow you on Instagram. Obviously you're at Jody White LPC, right? Just so yeah. people know. Um, it's a great Instagram. And if you're identifying with any of this dynamic, I really highly go suggest I suggest you guys go follow her just because you give these like motivational quotes. Like it's always comes at the right time too, or you make fun of yourself in some sort of addiction (laughs) way. And it's like, ah, yes. Okay. This is okay. It kind of can give you hope. Like this doesn't have to be doomsday all the time. Um, But you did a post that really resonated with me and it's about relationship dynamics, which obviously most of this stuff is about, but it was one specific thing that I really, really find myself doing. And I've seen so many of my friends do it too. So I think it's really common actually, but I want to read the post and then I want to talk through the different things that maybe we do in this dynamic and how, you know, maybe some tips on how we can do things differently for the people listening. But, um, so you said, let me find the actual post. The actual post says, if you're waiting for a partner to do the work on themselves, the work you believe they need to do in order to be better, that's the same as hoping they'll change or become someone else. We must get to know a person for who they are right now. That's like the key word for me right now, not who we hope that they will be at some point in the future. My therapist, uh, when I read this, I was like, oh, I heard that one before. It was kind of like a, uh, you know, gut, <laughs> gut punch. But my therapist has told me this exact same thing. She says, I, I have this tendency to date on potential. Yeah. Have you heard that before? Yeah. I use that a lot that it's like the addiction to the potential. Right. What they could be if the right. if thens, like you were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. So you say in the caption, that you said, I'd meet someone, then the fantasy would kick in and I'd overlook the reality of who they were, i.e. their lack of availability, but I'd often get into the relationship with them instead. So you would Mm -hmm. see the red flags, Mm -hmm. but you wouldn't necessarily stop yourself. Right. Right. And so look, functional adult me saw the red flags. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, wounded child me <laughs> was like, but only if I could do all mm. these things, let me perform, let me do this, let me hold on to hope and potential because that's what I've been doing my whole life is like, sure. you know, holding out for the potential of what could be better if I, if only I can do this or that. But I mean, if you're anything like me, like I'm pretty skilled at doing that kind of stuff. So oh, yeah. this is how, this is what I tell myself. And, um, for a while it does work, you know, like I can bring, I can see the different areas, even where I'm like, Ooh, I got that one. I could do that. Or I could help them with that. And then we could like really even it out. And then, you know, like this would be better if we did this and I've got the ideas already, but it's super subconscious. I don't realize I'm doing this obviously, but I can see where once all of that stuff is sorted out, this will be the perfect relationship. Right. Right. Meanwhile, my entire life falls apart. (laughs) Right. Because we're so over-focused on the person that we're with and over-functioning in the relationship to try to get all that stuff to work. Yeah. Right. Um, so something, so let's go back to what we were saying about the, 
issues with um, self-esteem, which is one of the symptoms of codependence. Okay. So then that, that correlates into one of the symptoms of love addiction, which is we put someone on a pedestal, we overvalue the person that we're with, right? I mean, it's not that people aren't valuable, but when we overvalue them, right? We're putting them on a pedestal, we're making them bigger or higher up than us, right? Um, so, but let's look at when we are believing that we know what would be best for this other person, we're actually one-upping. It's like, I know what would be best. If only they would do therapy and they'd work on that thing. Or if only they would curtail that drinking, that drinking, you've got a problem with their drinking. So what we're doing is really judging and we're one upping. So I believe that we do that to kind of um, soothe the insecure attachment that we have when we have them on a pedestal. You know, it's it's painful. It's uncomfortable to think they're better than us. Oh, why do they, you know, I need to be, I need to be hot and sexy and all these things in order for this person who's way up on that pedestal to love me the way I need to be loved. That doesn't feel good. It's, it feels it's based in our insecurity. And so I think when we do that, um, if only I can change them and tweak this and fix that, that's a little bit of um, one upping in order to kind of counter our insecure attachment and how painful that is. I never really realized that because it is interesting because you can be both, right? Like I can look at a situation and go, there's, I think a part of me that maybe if I'm being really honest, takes comfort in someone else having shit go like not right because I'm, I, I compare their outsides with my insides. So if my insides are a mess, it's like, Oh good. Okay. see, I'm not the only one that's got stuff mm-hmm. going on. Um, because of my insecurity piece, I guess. But then there's some stuff where I'm like, oh, I've done a bunch of work. I've been in recovery for this many years. I know about that. Like I, mm-hmm. I have a lot of knowledge. I, I know what to do, you know, but in reality, it takes me out of my own program work and the focus on me. And so right. then I fall back into my really unsober thinking mm-hmm. and kind of exactly. exactly. See how that works. It goes around this kind of circle yeah. or like a connect the dot kind of thing. Um, and I guess I should also say, though, because when I posted that, I did get a message from someone saying that people can change. And I, nowhere in there do I say that people can't change. Um, I'm a therapist. I believe people can change. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I've seen it. I've done it. I've All right, it. I've right. made a lot of <laughs> But what I'm saying is we're talking about co-addictive relationships, people who struggle with um, attachment trauma and love addiction. We get into relationships. We stay in them. And we stay in them because we have this fantasy of what it will be like once they do all these things that we know they can do, if only they would do them, you know? And so we have to be in touch with reality, which again, that's one of the symptoms of codependence, right? Issues with reality. We have to be in touch with the reality of the situation and who is the person, who are they really? And get to know them based on who they really are. Mm. not who we want them to be or think they could be if they tweak a few things and then make a decision. Do I want to be in this relationship with this person based in reality, who this is? Right. And that also makes me think about um, like, do they want to do the work? Because I just assume that everyone does because I'm like, Oh, like this is from childhood. I want to deal with this. I want to, I don't, I don't want my relationship to look like that as an adult. So Um, But one of the things that I've bumped up against is I get in a relationship assuming that everyone thinks the way that I do or wants the Mm -hmm. same things as I do. When in reality, a lot of people 
don't want to do the work or it's not interesting to them to even look at that stuff. So I pretend like if they did the work, they would be better, but like, they don't even want to do the work. (laughs) Right. Does that make sense? Right. And again, it goes back to, you know, technically who are we to say what work they need to do? Exactly. Right. So that kind of goes back into the one up a little bit, like that we think we know because we have been in recovery and we've done all the therapy and all that stuff. And so it's, you know, whether or not they do all that, it's kind of goes with that phrase of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's none of our business, you know, what, what work they need to do, what they will ultimately end up doing on themselves. If they do anything, that's not for us to say it's for each individual person to figure out, you know, what work they need to do. Um, you know, I was in a co-addictive relationship for four years. It was on and off. I don't even know how many times we broke up and got back together. And I just always thought if only he'd go to therapy, if only he'd quit drinking, if only he'd stop working so much, if you know, and I would be on him all the time about this because I knew best. Right. Mm-hmm. And so years later, that was 11, 12 years ago that we broke up and he has been in therapy. He has curtailed his drinking. Um, he is now married, you know, and we were not on bad terms, but um, he said to me not too long ago, he said, you, you could see things that I couldn't see. And I said, now's not the time to tell me that. No, <laughs> that's my worst nightmare in some ways. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time I was already in recovery. So it was like, cool. I'm so glad, you know, yeah. because, but my point with that is that people can eventually get to a point where they might do the work later, but are you going to wait around for that? You know, mm-hmm. like, you got to look at how valuable you are and how valuable your life is and, um, you know, live your life and take care of yourself versus focusing on someone else and what you're hoping they'll do. Right. And not also attached to their journey. Like their journey is their journey. It's not your journey. And where, right. are, you, where are you on your journey? That's like right. the question I keep having to ask myself in life because I get, I can, I don't, it's not even just romantic relationships for me. It's friendships. It can be work relationships. It's like the dynamic of getting really attached to someone else's journey and thinking that I know what they need to do to help fix whatever issue it is, even when they didn't ask. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that goes with the codependence, you know, um, with boundaries, really, because of probably several symptoms, but let's look at boundaries. And I always use the hula hoop analogy. Okay. Everyone's in their own hula hoop and we should not get into someone else's hula hoop and we shouldn't really let anybody else in our hula hoop. And we can bump up against hula hoops because that's cool, you know, but that's about being an autonomous, interdependent, you know, adult in another relationship. It's like, you know, you can have healthy boundaries. You can be your own person, but, and you can also be in relationship with someone else. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the fantasy piece because we use that term a lot um, in regards to love addiction. And it's very common in that world and all the books you read. But like I've always associated fantasy with or the word fantasy with like sexual fantasy. And like, I don't really believe that to be, I mean, it's, it could be a part of that, but I think that it's a much bigger picture. And so I didn't really realize the fantasy that I was living in, in my life, Mm -hmm. or that I have lived in, in relationships or the fantasies I was putting on certain people. So can you kind of explain what that might look like? I mean, you did say, you know, what your experience was growing up. So it can be about a relationship, but like, say you meet a person now, or you met a person now, what 
could that look like if you were in your active love addiction? Mm. So I'm actually, I'm thinking if I could use an example that, um, okay, let's see. Well, there was a relationship I had, this is a while ago, but, um, there was a lot going on in my life, but I thought I was managing it. Uh (laughs) And then I look back now and go, wow, I was really not doing great. Um, (laughs) I dated, I went on a date with this guy who very nice guy, but was not interested. Okay. And it wasn't a big, you know, it was just, I wasn't interested. Well, then something traumatic happened and I won't go into that here, but I suddenly decided that person was of interest to me and I grabbed on and held on to that relationship for about a year, trying to make him into who I needed him to be because I was avoiding the trauma that I had just experienced, right? And all the things I needed to focus on. And so this is an adult example of um, how the fantasy can show up. It's that it's, I, I call it kind of like it's square peg round hole. You're just constantly forcing something. And so maybe instead of, the term fantasy in this case, it's just not based in reality. We're not looking at reality. We're not living in reality, you know, because we're not looking at the reality of this relationship. We're not a fit. Um, You know, I'm trying to force something. I'm falling apart as I try to force this relationship to happen. And I keep believing that if only I will do this or X, Y, Z, if I'm hotter or cooler or, um, whatever it is I need to do is always a performance of some sort, then that will change the way that he behaves towards me. Mm. So that's one of the ways that, you know, to look at fantasy, it's not so much as we're off in la la land, like a fairy tale, but we're not rooted in reality and what's actually happening. I love the, like, if I just do this, then this relationship will work because then you're molding yourself into this person. You're not either, which right. Like I've, I've gotten to the end of relationships before and they're like, I just, I thought we were happy or whatever. And I'm like, because they're happy because I'm jumping through hoops to make their relationship work Mm -hmm. and do whatever, but I'm not even being myself. So I'm miserable. Like, you know what I mean? So you're living in this place of completely abandoning everything you want need to the point where like, I can lose what I actually do want and need. I don't Mm -hmm. even know anymore. And So they're, but they're blindsided in some ways, which is actually pretty messed up. (laughs) Well, and that tells you about the love addict, love avoidant dynamic, because I used to always say, especially in this four year co-addicted relationship, like, it's just like, you don't have to do anything. I just do everything. Well, no kidding. I was right. <laughs> I mean, why would he do anything? I was doing everything. I right. Was, yet here I was being resentful because I was doing all the work. When meanwhile, he's just being himself, you know. He's living his best life. Doing, he's living his best <laughs> life. <laughs> and that's the over-functioning in the relationship. Uh, yes, I'm all too familiar with that, unfortunately. If you know anything about me, you know I am a massive creature of comfort. It is one of my top priorities in life to make my surroundings comfortable at all times. So when I found Cozy Earth, I quickly scooped up all of the luxurious bedding and loungewear that I could. It felt very on brand for me, but then I went on a trip with a girlfriend not too long ago where she could not stop commenting on how cute and comfy my pajamas were, which then made me realize they may also be my new favorite travel companion as well. Guys, I am not kidding when I say you will experience unmatched softness and smoothness with all of Cozy Earth's products. 
The temperature-regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew add comfort and a touch of style to any travel ensemble, and their bedding comes in the most adorable totes, making it a super easy gift to give anyone. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code VELVETSEDGE at the checkout for an exclusive 35% off, and let them know we sent you when you're at the checkout. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You mentioned lack of availability. Like, what can that look like? Lack of availability. Is that just, we'd mentioned earlier the work thing. So if someone's working all the time, is that considered lack of availability or is it Mm -hmm. something different? Uh, So... Did I write this in that post? Something about lack. Well, of you said you said, i.e., their lack of av- of availability, uh, yeah. like that she would just overlook that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So let's use work. So someone who's just work. I had I've had several um, co-addictive relationships like that where my partner was always working, traveling on the road. I dated a baseball agent for mm-hmm. a couple of years. Talk about you know, quote unquote, working. Uh-huh. baseball games, hanging out with the players, doing all the events, all that stuff. So he was gone all the time and didn't matter how much I complained, that was not going to change, you know? So looking back at that, it's how, why was that okay with me? That's not the kind of relationship I wanted, but I was getting something out of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I stayed in it and other lack of availability, maybe because of an addiction, maybe because they're having an affair, maybe emotionally, they just are not we're not on the same page, not on the same wavelength, you know, um, you let's even, let's just say the most, well, I don't like the term healthiest, let's say healthiest person ever. Um, you know, the way you share, the way you open up to someone, the way that you're, um, available and wanting to communicate with someone, but yet the other person does not do reciprocate or isn't able to do that. They're not, you know, on the same page, um, I say emotionally, because some people just aren't able to open up that way, right? But we'll stay in that as in love addiction, you know, we'll stay in it. And we'll just do all the sharing and all the opening up and think we're being so vulnerable, right? When really, this person isn't even really opening up or 
showing us anything. So how yeah. vulnerable are we really being if, you know, we don't, we know it's not being received or reciprocated. What do you mean? So, how vulnerable are we really being? So this is another thing with, because I used to say this a lot in my love addiction is like, I'm, I'm being so authentic and so vulnerable when really I actually was guarding myself quite a bit. You know, there's a difference between um, ha- being vulnerable and then being open and having boundaries, right? Like you, okay. vulnerability requires healthy boundaries too. Yes. Otherwise you're just dumping a bunch of stuff and you're right. dumping a lot of information. And so in my love addiction, my partners for the most part were not seeing me. They weren't listening. They weren't um, able to hear everything I was saying or showing up for me. So anything I was sharing with them or the vulnerability was really knowing that they were not going to turn around and say, Hey, I see you. Thank you for sharing with me. Thanks for being so available. So it was almost like safe. Does that make sense? Yes. Like they were never going to turn around and say, Whoa, I'm hearing you. I'm seeing you. I'm validating you. I love you. I'm here for you. They weren't, they always had their back to me and, you know, in a way. And so being the vulnerable one, um, which really wasn't that vulnerable, but feeling like I'm the one doing all this vulnerability work over here when really they weren't even looking at me. So how vulnerable was I really being? So really, and really there's no intimacy in that. It's just, there's that's, no. that's the protection you're talking about is that it was right. safe in some ways because you didn't have to really think about how vulnerable that was or because the intimacy wasn't actually happening. Right, exactly. And now that's my challenge in recovery is now that I'm in a, a long-term relationship where this person shows up for me all the time. And so for me to be able to be vulnerable and share what's really going on with me and know that he's actually going to hold space and hear Mm. it, that's still very scary for me to do that. That is interesting. So why would, why would we disregard, like if you're looking at someone and you're like, Oh, they're not that available. Would we, is it, is this exactly what we were just talking about? Why would we disregard their lack of availability? So the way it works oftentimes with this co-addictive dynamic is that both partners come together pretty quickly and they both appear very available. And there's typically um, possibly a lack of boundaries. There's a lot of oversharing, maybe uh, not always, but the more love avoidant partner doesn't appear avoidant at first. They're available. And even the more love addicted partner doesn't really feel insecure or anxious initially. But then as time goes on and the avoidant, I always say it starts with the avoidant partner pulling away just a little, Mm. and that will trigger that insecure attachment in the love addict. And then the love addict starts to uh, over-function. And a, a common message that might go through the love addict's head is, oh shit, I've done something wrong because suddenly they're behaving differently, you know, and it can be really subtle, but they're just, something's not quite right. You feel it because they're they're slower to text back. Like it could be something that simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if we shared it with a friend, they might be like, what are you talking about? But we know because we're so hypersensitive to anyone's change in behavior because of our upbringing, we can, we're very Mm -hmm. sensitive to what someone's doing energetically and when they're turning away from us. Mm -hmm. And so we go into over-functioning. Okay. So what, how can I get it back to where it was? And the more we over-function, the more the avoidant will start to pull away more. Mm. And so by then the dynamic has happened. It's, I call it like the hook is in. 
And so we are just caught up in that cycle of love addiction where we're ignoring the reality and we're staying focused on, we can even use the, the fantasy now, is getting it back to where it was when we first started dating because it seems so perfect then. Yeah. If it was just for two weeks, it doesn't that's matter. Great, long enough. Yeah. yeah, that's long yeah. enough. Um, and so then we'll just ignore the reality of this person clearly is not available because we're already hooked in it. So. so then on the flip side of that, um, well, I said, why would you overlook unavailability? But then like, are there people who you'd mentioned the avoidant avoidant kind of relationship, would they be very drawn to the unavailability as what they would want in a relationship? Say that again. Like if, if you are a love avoidant, which we haven't really talked about that much, but um, it's kind of the opposite side of this same uh, attachment wound, right? Yeah. Well, you mentioned the enmeshment. So like if you were an avoidant, would you, if you were drawn to another avoidant, would it feel really safe because you would know like that's, or maybe like what you would even want in a relationship because you don't want intensity. You don't want availability necessarily. Could be. Yeah. Could be. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have never been the avoidant with another avoidant. I've always been the avoidant with another someone who is playing more love addict yeah. in the love addict. Yeah. And I should say that most based on my experience, people I talk to people I hear from people I work with, we can be both. We flip around yeah. we, depending on what gets triggered in the relationship. We can be more avoidant or we can be more insecure or more like a love addict. Is there any scenario where someone who has not done the work around this sort of trauma would just get in a secure relationship? <laughs> Can it so happen? Anyone, who has, anyone yeah. who has attachment trauma independence. I mean, I don't want to say that couldn't happen. Um, I think that we can feel secure. Yeah. And you're saying without doing the work, can that happen? Uh, I don't want to say that couldn't happen. I haven't seen it happen. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, I'm just sort of thinking if you're an active, if you're actively in your addiction, uh, you're probably picking someone also active in theirs or that has those wounds, right? That seems to be how it works. Yeah. But okay. see, I also go on the theory that a, most of us are walking around with some sort of wounding. That's not saying that we're all walking around with some you know, major true. trauma or anything, but I do think that we have some sort of wounding, whether, even if it wasn't family of origin wounding, did it happen at school? Were you bullied at oh, school? Yeah. Was there someone who, a teacher who just berated you every day and caused you to feel like shit about yourself? I mean, you know, where did something oftentimes has happened along the lines that has caused us to, um, you know, caused us to doubt ourselves, to need to soothe ourselves to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get back to the caption. Cause you say uh, the other thing you used to say to yourself is once he does therapy, he won't act like that. You have it in quotes <laughs> <Yeah>. anymore. <laughs> or once I get him to go to therapy, which I started mm -hmm. dying laughing when I read that part, because that's like the biggest thing I was like, when we go to therapy and I actually feel like I, I get fearful of saying my truth sometimes. And I want the therapist to communicate it for me. I'm mm -hmm. like, I have knowledge that this is messed up somehow. But I'm so fearful of, you know, intimacy with my partner or bringing that up or having, I don't, I don't really know what my block always is, but mm -hmm. sometimes it can feel really hard. And so I, I convinced myself, oh, we need therapy, but I'm like, fingers crossed that the therapist is going to say 
what I think they should say to my partner. Mm -hmm. So my partner can get fixed. Yeah. Well, there's your, there's your bunch of red flags right there. (laughs) Oh, you saw some in that? A whole bouquet right there. Um, That was a full bouquet for you. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, if we're not able, and this is just a rule of thumb, if we're not able to be ourselves and speak up in a relationship, big problem, you know, it's a big problem. We have to be able to communicate and be ourselves. And I would guess that part of the reason you weren't comfortable bringing something up yourself is because what if that led to disconnection? Mm. Right. And so all we do in our love addiction is avoid disconnection. That's all. Uh, We're just trying so hard to avoid disconnection. Yeah. I've never had that said so simply, but that is exactly right. Because the second you feel the disconnection, just like what you were just talking about, even if it's the slow text or whatever, the anxiety Mm -hmm. picks up. Yep. Interesting. Uh, What about if only he read the books I gave him, he'd be a better partner. Uh, My thing is uh, I send podcasts and articles I read about relationships. Yeah. (laughs) Your book. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've, I've done that a lot. I mean, but I, I can't even count the books I've given to people, but that four year <laughs> co-addicted relationship, I gave that, that guy a book on Buddhism and how Buddhism will help with, you know, everything in life. And I gave him a book and then I gave it to him again because he told me he lost it. That's, that's. <laughs> he probably threw that. it away and you're like, yeah, you're like, oh, you lost I it. I got this. <laughs> He's like, oh, I moved and I must've lost it in the move. And I was like, oh, I'll get you another one. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, gee, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I loved, there was a podcast of yours I was listening to, and you said something about when you started dating this guy and he had all these empty bookshelves and yes. you were like, oh, he just hasn't unpacked yet. He just moved. He hasn't unpacked yet. And you were like, where's your books? And he says to you at books, why would anyone keep books? Like he didn't even like to read yet mm-hmm. that, and that was a huge part of your life of what you want in your relationships. And yet you still got in the relationship, but it just goes to show how we just don't listen sometimes yeah. like, to yeah. what they're actually saying. Like mm-hmm. the Buddhism book, that's hilarious, but maybe yeah, he bought it twice. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if only he didn't drink so much, then things between us would be better. Maybe I can get him to quit. <laughs> um, yeah. was this is drinking someone told me once that it was a barrier that some of us use to continue in emotional unavailability. Like, or it's a, it's a, it's a way to medicate to where you don't have to be completely vulnerable or uh, emotionally available. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one way to say it for sure. I mean, I used to think that when we drank together, my, especially this one partner I'm talking about, um, that we got closer that that was when we could have intimacy. And then when I got sober, I realized that was never, that's not intimacy. That wasn't me being honest about who I am, you know, or authentic. Right. Why and though? So, Why do you say that? Um, because authentic and honest would be to say, I'm really struggling this, in this relationship. I feel like you don't love me and I don't know if it's going to work. And I'm really scared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, okay. that was never said. It was just, let me tell you all my trauma oh. <laughs> and let me, yeah, let me overshare with you. And then you'll overshare with me and we're, we're drinking and it's really great. And so I feel so connected. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. But then yeah. the next day we'd be right back to where we were, you know, because it wasn't real connection. Mm-mm. It wasn't yeah. real connection the false sense of connection, but that would be exactly. soothing in the moment for oh, yeah. a person with attachment wounding. Oh yes. Yeah. And alcohol definitely soothed for me. 
definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you say he has a lot of trauma. So once he works that out, things will be quote unquote better. Yeah. <laughs> so my reaction to reading this, but like, he does have a lot of trauma, so it would be better. <laughs> so obviously there's another bouquet for you, but, um, something else my therapist and I always work on is, you know, I'm really drawn to what she describes as wounded men or, but they, you know, they, they have huge hearts. They're very charismatic. It doesn't mean like they're bad people by any means. Mm-hmm. It just means no. there's wounding there. And I, right. I am like, Oh, I just love that. It just sucks me right in. Um, and so it was kind of what I was saying to you earlier. I get in the relationship and go, Oh, they have the same wounding as me even sometimes, mm-hmm. or they have wounding too. And so we kind of can bond over that or something. It's like this, you know, magnet yeah. to each other. And then I go, okay, well, I'm doing all this work and I want to go to these meetings or I want to go to this therapist and I want to read this book and I want to listen to this podcast. So you probably do too. Right. And so I'm like sending all this stuff, but they don't want to actually do that. They don't care. They're not interested mm-hmm. in that. They don't want to dive into their childhood and look at why they do the way, you know, things the way they do. Um, so I guess, my question in that is, is that part of like a fantasy or, um, what are ways that we could actually look at the relationship or the person that you're meeting and not go into that place of like putting whatever you think, um, the right thing to do would be onto them when you're drawn to that kind of dynamic. So that's where boundary work comes in. Okay. I mean, boundaries, I mean, just boundaries, boundaries, boundaries <laughs> all the time. And so to know, again, if you use that hula hoop analogy and you really get good with, okay, what's mine, you know, what can I control? I control myself. I control if I go to therapy or if I read this book or if I do this podcast, I can invite someone to do it, but I cannot expect someone or force them to do it. Like that's in their hula hoop. They, my choices are in my hula hoop, their choices and beliefs and behaviors are in their hula hoop. Right. And so if we can do that and, you know, they focused on ourselves. You can still share. Like, I really, what do you think about this? You know, I like this book. What do you think about it? And they're like, I'm not interested in it. Okay. That's information. Mm. That's information. They're not interested in the same things I am. Does that mean that y'all can't have a healthy relationship? Not, not necessarily, but if you want to be with someone who is interested in um, working on things the way that you work on things, or at least similarly, or at least is working on stuff, (laughs) you know, then you got to pay attention to that. It's also about identifying maybe what you want out of a partnership or a relationship ahead of totally. time, because if totally. you don't know, then you're just walking in blindly thinking everyone wants the same things as you. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of reminding me of that. I think it's a Maya Angelou quote where she says, when someone shows you who you are, believe them. Yeah. Is that how it goes? Is that the right? Yeah. Word? When someone, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Yes. That's yeah. it's so good. So it's, I mean, so pay attention, but what about my, I think my struggle is, um, and maybe this is because I don't pay attention enough at the beginning of Mm -hmm. any sort of relationship, but accepting who someone is sometimes can be very painful, right? Like, cause if you make up who they should be, then having to accept who they are could cause you pain. So what can you do? Because I mean, I'm pain averse. I don't, I don't want any pain. I don't want any more pain. I've had enough pain in my life. So I do a lot of things to try to avoid pain and I'm trying to get more comfortable Mm -hmm. with that. But, um, how can we get past that part of this? So I guess the answer would depend on where you are in a relationship. You know, um, if I use my four year co-addictive relationship by the end of four years, 
it was just how many more times are we going to break up? And, you know, I had a really major aha moment where I caught myself trying to get him to see something my way. And it just, I was like a message from <laughs> the sky that said, you're being codependent right now, Jody. Mm -hmm. This is codependence. This is a sign of codependence. And it just hit me. And I realized I've been doing it for four years. And so you have to say, okay, it's painful to say, this is not ever going to be the way I want it to be. Yeah. But see, we avoid that disconnection, right? Like I said, but the whole time that we are in the relationship, in that co-addictive relationship, and we're over-functioning, we are trying to avoid pain. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, we are in pain. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. And so you have to, the, the thing we're avoiding that we think we can't tolerate is actually where growth is going to happen. Mm. That's our opportunity. That's where we grow. So you could stay in this cycle in pain, trying to avoid pain. <laughs> you know, you're staying in it with the pain, you know, that you think you can control, but then avoiding the pain of disconnection when really you're not going to die, you're going to survive it. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what I would, I was curious if there's someone listening um, because, you know, sometimes I feel like, especially that's kind of why I think we both said we don't like the term love addict. It feels mm -hmm. so harsh and hard. Um, what would you say to someone who's listening? Who's maybe like, yeah, like they're dating and it's, they're identifying, oh, maybe this is how my past relationships have been. How do you find the hope in that? Like, where is mm -hmm. the hope in this dynamic? So something I hear from clients when they come to me and I hear this often and I can relate, but it's that I've wasted so much time. I've wasted so much of my life in these dysfunctional relationships. I've wasted time with this person or that person or all these people. And the thing is, nothing is wasted. So that's the hope. Everything that has happened has gotten you where you are. And if, you know, I, I think to look at, if we can look at that and have that awareness and realize, okay, I need to make a change. Change mm -hmm. is possible. Mm -hmm. We can get into recovery. We can, you know, um, start working on codependence. And there's a ton of hope once you're in recovery. I mean, the whole world opens up. Yeah. Where do people go to find that? Like the recovery stuff? Because I think that's an overwhelming piece too. If you don't know anything about any sort of addiction yeah. stuff, or you're like, oh, you see AA on TV in like a movie, mm -hmm. you know? Right. Yeah. I, I always recommend start with facing love addiction by mm -hmm. P. Melody, that okay. book. Um, okay. I credit that. I believe P. Melody's work saved my life. I really do believe that. Not only that, but it totally changed the work I do as a therapist. I had no idea. So if I look back, I didn't get into recovery until I was 46. And I'm 51 now. I'm five years in this yeah. summer, actually, probably right now. And um, I would have never known, you know, at 46, what the next five years could look like. And um but so I credit Pia Melody uh, with where I am right now, but facing love addiction is one of her books. I love it. Okay. Uh, facing codependence is another one. And um, if you can't, if it, anyone is looking for a therapist who has trained with Pia Melody, um, there is, you can call the Meadows, okay. which is her facility out in Wickenburg, Arizona. And you call the intake line, let them know you're looking for a Meadows trained therapist and tell them where you're located 
and they will give you a list of therapists in your area who specialize in love addiction and attachment trauma and codependence, which is yeah. So it really goes back to, again, um, you know, that cheesy thing people always say where it's like, you really have to love yourself first before you can love someone else. But I sort of hate that statement, but it's sort of like, you really do have to know yourself first. And, Mm -hmm. and I do think you have to love yourself, but maybe as I was saying to you, like, how do we accept other people for who they really are? But like, I'm asking myself, do I accept myself for who I really am too? Mm -hmm. And so doing that work, maybe before you start diving into dating and looking at a partner to make your life better and anything like that, like, because I think that's where, if we're not doing that work first, Mm -hmm. we're going to keep this cycle going. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't like that term either. You got to love yourself before you can love anybody else. Because the thing about attachment trauma is, loving yourself is very challenging mm-hmm. <laughs> because we struggle with self-esteem and self-worth issues. And so that's part of the recovery work is doing, um, which is a whole nother podcast episode, but it's about, you know, carried shame. We yeah. struggle with carried shame, which causes us to struggle with self-worth. Yeah. So it's not as easy as, Hey, I'm going to go out there and love myself now. You know, there's a whole lot of um, old messaging and baggage that we carry around. that's really heavy that we have to clear out before we can really, um, get to that point where we really know who we are and then we love ourselves. But also you just said about accepting yourself before you can accept others. It's also self-compassion is a big part of recovery. And so I also recommend Dr. Kristen Neff's work. Okay. She um, wrote the book self-compassion and she has a new book called radical self-compassion and it's a mindfulness, you know, self-compassion is a mindfulness exercise Um, and if you can start a self-compassion practice, things will start to shift because it literally changes the brain. Mm. And, um, then you can start having compassion for yourself. And again, I always like to say the world will start opening up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, where can people find you? Well, my practice is in Austin. Okay. And I, um, actually, I'm moving away from individual work, but I am working toward offering intensives here mm. in Austin. So weekend intensives. I, d- I do believe one-on-one therapy weekly. That's great. Um, but I also think that intensive work, especially when you're dealing with love addiction, codependence mm-hmm. and family of origin trauma, um, intensive can intensive work can take therapy to a whole nother level. Yeah. Um, so I'm also on Instagram at Jody white LPC. I have the podcast profile, which is at Journals of a Love Addict. And I think that's all I'm doing right now. Okay. So Jodi is J-O-D-I. I I just want to point that out to people. Also, what can we look forward to on the podcast? I'm always like, what's going to come out next? (laughs) What's the next time? I know. (laughs) I know. I have a couple of things planned. Um, So (laughs) one of the things I have in mind is that, you know, my partner and I, we've been together, let's see, five five over five five years yeah our relationship actually is the one we broke up after a few months of being together and that is what sent me into recovery and then we took time apart we did no contact I had no plans of getting back together with him and yet we got back together about six months after we broke up and um he has been pivotal in my recovery he has also done his own work and so I have an idea to have him on the podcast and talk about his perspective of how at our time of breakup, he was more love avoidant and what he was going through. 
and then what I was going through and my love addiction and how that, how that has all, um, what's happened since then. So that's one of my ideas that we're. Oh, I love out. that. Well, I'll be looking <laughs> forward do, to that. Yeah. What were you going to yeah, say? Oh, I do think that we, um, you said this earlier that someone who is more love avoidant, it's, we have a tendency to label them as bad people yeah. or bad partners or narcissists or something. And that's not the case. Everyone's we're, we're all just scared. Yeah. <laughs> we're just, yeah. I think that's right. And I think that that it, it comes again with like that you have the self-compassion piece where when you're watching yourself struggle, it's like kind of addressing it, not in this way of shame of like, Oh my God, you're so messed up. But in this mm-hmm. way, I'm like, wow, what's really going on. And when you can look at someone else, if they're doing maybe their work too, so that you're not carrying it for them, but they, you can identify it as that. You can also have the compassion for them of mm-hmm. like, Oh, look at, they're just scared or, you know, any yeah. of those things. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Well, um, keep me posted on the intensives. <laughs> um, and also like you guys go check out Jody. Her Instagram is awesome. Even if you don't fully identify with the love addiction piece, I think that there's a lot of good relationship nuggets in there and just the dynamics of how to be in touch with yourself and, and how you're dealing with a relationship as well. So check her out on Instagram. It's at Jody white LPC. Journals of a Love Addict is the podcast. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. And Jody, thank you so much for being here again. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Velvet's Edge podcast with Kelly Henderson, where we believe everyone has a little velvet and a little edge. Subscribe for more conversations on life, style, beauty, and relationships. Search Velvet's Edge wherever you get your podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.